This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Over the past few years, there have been a number of crises that have brought a renewed focus on Australia's federal system. As the federal government went missing in action, state premiers stepped up during the COVID pandemic, winning support and popularity from the public. And as floods continue to devastate parts of the country, communities have been left to fend for themselves, some of which are still reeling from the black summer bushfires, while they wait for state and federal governments to coordinate their disaster response. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor, Head of News Mike Tisher, and State News Editor Connell Hanna about how to report on state news. It's Friday, the 11th of March. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. And today we have a third guest, Guardian Australia's new Associate Editor for State News, Connell Hanna. Welcome, Connell. Good morning. Great to be with you. Throughout the pandemic, the state and federal governments have not exactly seen eye to eye. Do we need to rethink the federal system and how the state and federal governments interact, Lenore? Well, I guess federalism has always been a complicated beast. For a while, we used to call it cooperative federalism, but, you know, it isn't always. <laughs> there was, for a long time, I think, a big focus on the federal government, even though a lot of the services that you know, everybody relies on all of the time in their daily lives, like schools and hospitals and police and most relevant recently emergency services, the electricity grid, like lots of things are all state responsibilities. I think the pandemic really underlined how much power is in the hands of the premiers and many cases where the power was not in the hands of the Prime Minister. You know, it was the premiers who could shut domestic borders or lock down cities. It wasn't the Prime Minister. And I think that complicated, complex, not always efficient division of responsibilities and division of financial responsibilities has come to the forefront through all the crises we've been going through recently. So it's an age-old story, but one that's come to the fore and really the power of the premiers has come to the fore in recent years. Yeah, there's no question. I think the premiers have really been empowered by the pandemic. The media monitoring service Stream, where I've done some work, They publish a a list of the 10 highest profile people of the year every year. And in 2019, there were no premiers in the top 10. There was Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten and Josh Frydenberg and even Steve Smith, the cricketer and things like that. Whereas in the last two years, there's been four premiers in the top 10 each year. Uh, And it just shows, you know, at, at times during the pandemic, the premiers have actually had more of a media profile than Scott Morrison, which is highly unusual. Yes. I mean, the premiers were must view daily television viewing for months there, which I can't remember another time when that ever was the case. So it's going to be really fascinating as the pandemic slowly, hopefully recedes to see how that power balance shifts, whether it um, whether it continues uh, under its current system or whether it goes back to to business as usual. I think perhaps in the past few years, this is that's happened in conjunction with a government that's been seen to be more manage, about managing crises of various kinds than actively pushing its own policy agenda. Partly because it's not, it doesn't have a huge policy agenda that it wants to push, but also just because of the circumstances that we've been through bushfires and then the pandemic and now floods, it's kind of been in disaster management mode, and in in those circumstances. Uh, 
there's scope for the premiers to actually, you know, pop their heads up and and try to take the initiative on things that previously would have been seen to be entirely the federal responsibility, like, for example, climate change, as well as dealing with all the usual state stuff of which management of the disasters is a big thing for them as well. I mean, it goes further than that, doesn't it, Mike? In some circumstances, the states have actively worked around the absence of a climate policy at the federal level by just doing stuff that they can do under their own steam. Um, which I thought was a really interesting development. Mm. Even in coalition-led states, which I think is interesting, you know, uh, as well. Yes, I mean, mean, New South Wales has probably been the standout state Mm. in that respect, uh, particularly on climate, but not only on climate. Um, And that's been, yeah, under the coalition for, you know, a decade and more. So has this renewed kind of state focus presented any challenges to Guardian Australia's newsroom, Lenore? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it has. I mean, when we started in 2013, we had a clear sort of focus on particular subject areas that we thought were underreported and on federal politics. But I think everything we've just been discussing shows why we absolutely need to look at the Federation both through the lens of Canberra and through the lens of the states to properly understand how it functions or how it doesn't function. But the homepage of a news site is restricted in space just as much as a newspaper. I mean, some people seem to think that the, you know, the internet is sort of infinite, but we have limited resources and limited space on the front page. So we were always sort of struggling with how to deal with state news because, you know, a state news story might dominate the headlines, but then other national stories will sort of supersede it over time. So the solution I've been trying to implement for years, actually before the pandemic even, were state-based containers. So sections of the news site for state stories only. And we're going to launch them now on Monday, initially in Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria. So those sections of the site will be visible only in those states and will be hopefully covering off on the biggest state stories in those states. And we've appointed Connell to oversee the project and state reporters and editors in each of those states. And I hope that then we'll get to a point where, you know, a state news story will lead the site when it is national news, but the containers will give us the opportunity to cover off on the biggest stories in each state and also to kind of follow through on state stories, even when they might have dropped off the national agenda. And I'm really excited about having the capacity to look at how we are governed from the perspective of both the federal government and the states. I think it's a really great development for The Guardian. So, Connell, you're heading up this project but you've also been reporting on the floods for the past few weeks. What difference will the state containers make on that kind of reporting? Yeah, well, obviously the floods have been national news uh, for everybody. Uh, It doesn't matter where you live in the country, I think you've been transfixed by the scale of this flooding. But once the waters recede, uh, people in Melbourne will generally become less interested in what's happening in Brisbane or northern New South Wales. I think that's uh, understandable. But these communities are going to take years to rebuild. It's going to be such a hard slog, uh, having seen some of the devastation firsthand. So I think by having a state-based container, it really gives us the opportunity to, to stick with the story for longer than if, if we were trying to make it appeal to a national audience. Mm. And there's also state disaster recovery programs and payments as well. We, we have a lot of focus on the national payment programs and how that money gets distributed. Will you be following the money in the states as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's still some confusion around uh, what the Fed 
federal government's responsible for and what the state government's responsible for. And then even within New South Wales, for example, you know, some confusion about which agency is responsible for what. You've got the new Resilience New South Wales uh, agency, which is set up, which seems to have, you know, created some confusion as to whose responsibility uh, it is for different aspects of disaster relief and recovery. I think there's another role we can play here as well, which isn't about the tone of the coverage. We saw during the pandemic, there was a lot of backbiting and, you know, hostility between some of the premiers. And I think to some extent that was reflected in the state's own newspapers. And where we're trying to provide state coverage, but also as part of a national framework, we should be able to be always thinking about the national context and not just the state context. And not that I'm saying that all the newspapers in in the various cities did so, but we're definitely not going to be playing to the prejudices of our local audiences in any of these states and kind of feeding them anti-New South Wales sentiment in Queensland or Mm. anti-Victorian sentiment in New South Wales or anything like that, consciously or subconsciously, which I think there was a certain amount of that during the pandemic, particularly when it was tempting for for the media to kind of half get on board with what the premiers were saying because their readers were were very conscious of that of that mm. divide between the states. But hopefully, we'll always have the national context and the, you know the feelings of the other states in mind as well when we're doing this coverage. Yeah, I mean, I can talk through some personal experience of living in a border town uh, when a big event like a flood is going on. You've got, you know, a lot of media out there in the the media landscape is quite parochial. Uh, State-based media is probably the norm when you think about TV news and and other publications that a lot of them are state-based. And I think sometimes the danger is that that can get a little bit too parochial. So as an example here, when when really dangerous flooding was headed our way in northern New South Wales, we received the Queensland TV channels and it was almost impossible to, to learn information about what was coming our way because everything was so focused on Queensland. So I think... What I'm hoping, I think Guardian readers are very global-looking citizens of the world, really, but what I would really like to do is provide them interesting, insightful local news without devolving into a sort of parochialism that can be associated with that kind of local news. You know, news coverage has almost always been, has not been national, apart from one national newspaper and I suppose the Financial Review. Our most prominent newspapers and TV stations, as Connell mentioned, have always been state-based for obvious geographical reasons. People have a very strong state identity, as partly as a result of that, I think. So it is really something quite new in a way that we're trying to do, although there's always, of course, been coverage of national issues to try and knit all that together and give people a a state component as well as a national component, apart from the Australian, of course, which has always tried to do that as well. That is quite something quite new in, in Australian media in a digital sense, certainly. And in a broader sense, we need to be straight about it. We're not going to have the volume of coverage of big state-based mastheads. But I guess what we're going to try and do is in a mini form in each state, do what we did when we set up Guardian Australia in 2013. And that is pick the most important news based on Guardian's news values and priorities and offer the state readers who like The Guardian as a national news site that same kind of alternative and fresh perspective uh, with state news. And outside of the pandemic and climate change, the two stories that have really dominated the headlines over the past few years, what are some of the state-based stories that we might have missed that you're hoping to shine a light on now? 
Yeah, look, there's plenty of issues that we're really looking forward to getting stuck into. I think we've got a team of of nine who are going to be tackling this. There's been a number of stories in the last few weeks that are really good examples, I think, of, of where we'll be able to follow a story more closely because we have these state containers. So, for example, from the last few weeks is uh, the Sydney train shutdown, uh, which the government tried to call a strike but was clearly not the case. The Guardian did significant reporting on that already. It was obviously huge news for everyone in Sydney to wake up on a Monday morning and find that none of the trains were running with no notice whatsoever. And there was a huge political unfight about that with the Transport Minister accusing the unions of terrorist-like activity before being forced to back down completely. And that story did actually reach the threshold of being of national interest, but probably Mm. not for a sustained period. If you're in Melbourne or Brisbane, you only have so much interest in a Sydney train shutdown story. So the ability to keep chipping away at that and following that and doing stories day in, day out to really uncover what happened, I think that's a really good example of a story we'll be able to dedicate resources to. I mean, another issue that would fall into that category is the ongoing discussion and inquiry into the Crime and Corruption Commission in Queensland, which is kind of gripping news in Queensland, I think for people in other states can get a little hard to follow. We are covering that on the site in general, but I think it's something that a state container could cover in more detail and stick on on a daily basis. Yeah, 100%. I think that story is fascinating. It's got a number of facets to it. You've got the you know chair of the Triple C and um, the head of the Integrity Commission all both leaving their posts in relatively short time. So in Brisbane, there's, there's a huge interest in that topic, but not all of the Guardian's audience is in Brisbane. So we do uh, open the opportunity to be able to cover that off you know, in a more detailed way when you've got a section that caters exclusively for Queensland readers. And also all, all those the corruption stories or the stories around the corruption commissions in all the states play into the national conversation as well, don't they, And yeah. uh, about the Federal Integrity Commission. And um, the more we can cover them on a state basis, the, the more informed our readers will be about the national conversation, I think. Absolutely. I'm also really keen for this project to sort of work in collaboration with the regional, rural and regional news project that we have up and running at the moment where we've sort of got a network of regional reporters who work for our rural and regional editor, Gabby Chan. I mean, I think there's a good kind of collaboration that can happen between Connell's team and Gabby's team to try to make sure that we're sort of covering across the states as well. But on a practical level, for people in Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales, will the site look differently for each of them? Yeah, it will. If you live in Sydney, you're going to see an extra, we call them containers, like sort of section across the site for New South Wales news. And it will have stories in it that aren't visible to readers in other states, likewise in Brisbane or in Queensland for Queensland news. Yeah, so from Monday morning, readers will be able to log on and they should be served a a new section of their homepage with uh, state-based news. Uh, they will have the ability to change state as well if they're being served the, the wrong content through the geolocation technology or potentially they're just interested in what's happening in other states that they may uh, be associated with. So they will have that ability as well. This initial project is uh, funded by the Google News Initiative and it's a pilot project and our very strong hope is that we'll be able to expand it to other states in the near future. We're trialling it in these three states but we would really like to be able to do state news around Australia. Next, lifestyle choices and climate porn. 
So now we come to what we can't get out of our head. As a special guest, Connell, do you want to start? Oh, thank you. Uh, obviously, I've been pretty head down in flood coverage for the last couple of weeks, uh, reading as much about that. But one story that re- really did catch my eye this week was out of the UK uh, and six key lifestyle changes you can make to help avert the climate crisis. The floods have obviously made climate change very relevant, again, to people in a, in a tactile way. Uh, And I think what I really liked about this story is it really cut through into specifics of of what it suggested people should do. So as well as reducing meat and changing to solar power, there were some specifics around, you know, buying three new articles of clothing a year, uh, only flying short haul once every three years and long haul every eight years. Uh, These are confronting things, but these are things that we might need to start considering uh, if we're going to be uh, averting further climate catastrophe. Mine was also climate-themed. I'm a big fan of uh, one of our environment reporters, Graham Redfern's temperature check column, which is sort of a fact check of climate reporting. And he did a very calm but effective takedown this week of some pretty extraordinary claims made by columnist Andrew Bolt about how uh, the discussion of the floods in the context of global heating was, in fact, climate porn. Anyway, I would recommend temperature check. It's very good. And, Mike, what was it for you? Oh, I've just come back from a visit, brief visit to the UK and Ireland, which means... That's your one in eight uh, years, I Mike. only scored yeah. four and a half out of six at best on the climate change, and I've used up my flights for the next 16 years, which made me feel quite bad when I read that story. But the other story that stuck in my head was about the different response of those two countries to the Ukraine refugee crisis, which our Ireland correspondent Lisa O'Carroll has been reporting on and how many refugees Ireland, a relatively small country, has taken in contrast to the really disgraceful response of the UK in putting extraordinary barriers in the in the way of people trying to reach the UK uh, from, from Ukraine. So that was, in a way, quite a positive story. Obviously, Ireland loves to point to its own virtues uh, in contrast to the UK, um, but it has actually been extremely generous in this case and the UK has been extremely ungenerous. So I found that a fascinating story. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Gabs. That's it for today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. <laughs>